Um, how many of you, just as we're, as we're going to kind of be in Esther chapter 9, Esther chapter 9, you can go ahead and turn there. It's uh, middle of the book is, middle of the Bible is Psalms, to, to the left is Esther. How many of you saw Hunger Games? Just out of curiosity, raise your hand. <clears throat> raise it high, be proud. How many of you have not seen Hunger Games? And, and okay, that's fine too. It's, but you read the book. How many of you have not seen the movie, but you read the book? How many of you, when I say Hunger Games, you're thinking buffet? Okay, I'm just trying to narrow the crowd down so I kind of know who I'm talking to. Um, <laughs> the, when I, I went and saw that movie, um, <clears throat> I, don't know, I don't know what the statute of limitations is on um, spoiler alerts. So it's a three-year-old movie. I'm just going to talk about it. Is that okay? I'm not trying to, if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, but deal with it. Um, so when I first saw that movie, and I really wrestled with this, like, do I want to go see this movie? And so I go see it, and you're, and you're kind of, this was my experience. It does not have to be your experience, but my experience was I'm sitting in the theater, and I'm watching a movie, and I'm, I'm totally into the story of it, but I'm also conflicted because, again, this is the spoiler alert. I'm sorry if you haven't seen it, but I'm watching basically teenagers kill teenagers, and it's like, I like the movie, but I don't know if I'm supposed to like the movie. You know, it's just a weird, like, yay! Wait, can I do that? Can I? You're asking people around you, like, what's the, what's the protocol here? Like when teenagers kill teenagers, what do you do exactly? But here's what I noticed in that movie. There were, there were two types of participants in the game. Hold on. Welcome for that. So there's two types of participants in the game. One of them was, I, I don't want to kill you. I, I don't want to hurt you. If I have to, I will. And then there was the other group that were like, weapons. Let's kill people, right? Like that was it. And so what, when you're in the theater and you're watching this play out on the screen in front of you, um, I know, and again, if you haven't seen it, you have no idea what I'm talking about. If you were like buffet, then you're totally lost. I get it, but just hang with me. We're going somewhere. But what you see happen in the theater is these, the one group that's like, oh, this is great weapons. I hate people. I just want to kill people. You find that in the theater, the mood was we don't like those people. But then the other side, the, the Katniss side, right, um, the, the, the little small black girl that, that everybody loved and, and anyway, it's sad when she didn't make it. But you found yourself cheering for them. Am I right? Did you see, if you saw the movie, you found yourself cheering for them because there's, there seemed to be something good in them. Like they, they might have to kill somebody. They're probably going to have to kill somebody. I don't think they really want to kill somebody. But at least when they do, it, it feels somewhat justified because they're good people. That's kind of how the theater got got their brains wrapped around that whole concept. So, so we're in Esther chapter 9, right? And here's what I want you to understand. This morning, this is, and again, I didn't, I, I don't know if I would have even started teaching on Esther if I had known that you weren't supposed to. Um, so I just thought it was going to be a great book, fun story. We'll just talk about it. And then the more I study about it, I keep reading over and over and over again, like pastors never preach from this. Commentators don't like this. Like, they, like nobody wants to talk about Esther and then I'm reading, studying, getting ready for this chapter, and I read these words. People don't preach Esther 9. 
well, that would have been good to know, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that have been great to know? And it's like, so on one side, I'm thinking, God, I don't want to, why do I, I don't want to do that if nobody else does. But on the other side, here's what my prayer was. God, thank you. Thank you that you've given, you've given me the opportunity to be the pastor of a church who wants to study the Bible, who doesn't want me to jump from chapter 8 to chapter 10 and get in the car and never think about it. Because if I jumped from 8 to 10, you would actually get in the car and go, What's so bad about nine? When did our pastor become a wuss, right? I was like, why won't he talk about that? And so I love that when you teach, like when you go in a book and you go through the whole book, you can't just pick and choose. Like you have to kind of deal with some stuff. And so um, there's, the, Esther 9 is, it's an interesting chapter. And we're going to kind of see some Hunger Game-ish stuff going on. And we have to deal with that. What I want you to see is that this is, this is like the pinnacle of the book, okay? We will have the last, the last week, next week, we will deal with chapter 10, which if you've looked ahead is like all of three verses. So you're thinking, it's finally a short sermon, right? That's what you're thinking. Next week, short sermon, yay! Because like three verses, and I'll take Paul, I'll like only be 30 minutes, right? That'd be great. But so this chapter 9, this is like, this is the climax. This is like if you're watching the movie, this is when the music starts to swell. And you can tell by the violin playing that this is going to be epic. That's what's going on in chapter 9, okay? This is the day when Haman, months ago, had convinced the king, write a law that says we can kill Jews. Just wipe them out. And this is the day that God reversed through Esther. And Mordecai, we saw that he wrote a different law that said Jews can, they can defend themselves on that day. This is the chapter where all, that, where all that's going to take place. We'll see that in Esther chapter 9, the Jews took up arms. And I believe that we'll be challenged to be brave and take up arms as well. Today is be brave, take up arms. Since that, that might sound a little bit strange to you, okay? Uh, one of my favorite it's kind of like, we're Christians. I don't think we can fight. Can we? Can we fight if we're Christians? One of my favorite things about coaching teams at Park Ridge Christian School was trying to convince them it was okay to win games. Because they're like, but we're, we're Christian. Yes, God doesn't want to have Christian losers, right? He'd like for you to win. It's okay to be competitive. It's okay to actually want to beat the other team. There's nothing unchristian about that. And so we have to kind of deal with that, right? Because sometimes we're, we're in this culture where we're like, well, you're going to tell me that we're supposed to fight, but I'm thinking I'm supposed to be Christian, and aren't Christians loving? Yes, <laughs> they are loving, right? And so what we got to, let's just, from the very beginning, let's just talk about why we're supposed to fight. Why does God want us to fight? Your reaction to that is, is one of two. Uh, or I knew I was right to fight with my spouse on the way to church this morning, right? You're like, yeah, God was on my side. No, I'm not saying that at all. So I just, on your nose, let's just talk about this. There's a war that is raging. Um, what's interesting is in Esther chapter 9, from the end of chapter 8 to the beginning of chapter 9 is about nine months. It's about nine months. So here's what's happened. In nine months, nothing has taken place. Remember at the end of chapter 8, there's this big party. Jews are celebrating. The city's celebrating. They're having a block party, parade. They're handing out hot dogs, whatever. They're having a blast. They're doing like the, the cruise in. Like they got old cars there like it was yesterday. They're just hanging out, having a blast. And for nine months, nothing happens. It's kind of like, um, have you ever known that you were going to say goodbye to somebody? 
And so you knew that day was coming. Maybe when you were, um, this is a fun example, if you were at middle school camp when you were growing up and you had a crush on a girl. Not that it's ever happened to me, but like you, you started crushing on her on Tuesday and you knew that you were going to go home on Friday. And so all through the week it became like, oh, we'll only have two more breakfasts together. This is the last Thursday night I'll ever see you, right? Like you, you start, and it's even more like when you're married and you know that you're going to go away. It's like everything kind of becomes the last, the last, the last. That's, it's, you know it's inevitable, but you try to put it out of your mind. And so what I want you to see is that for nine months, inevitably this day is coming. Inevitably there's going to be a fight. But it would be so easy for nine months not to prepare wouldn't it? It'd be so easy just to kind of go, well, I don't, maybe, maybe it won't even happen. And I think sometimes this is a good picture of like our culture and our church, the church in America. We just kind of like, well, we, we know there's kind of a clash of culture maybe, but maybe it won't actually happen. Maybe, maybe it's just it's always going to be this good. So we just kind of hold up and just kind of ignore it, try to pretend like it's not going to happen, but it is inevitable. Let me show you why it's inevitable. Just keep your, your finger in Esther 9. Just flip over to 1 Corinthians 1.18. 1 Corinthians 1.18. Um, listen to this statement while you're turning there. It's going to sound a little bit weird. The gospel goes against our natural desires. The gospel goes against our natural desires. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. The message of the cross is foolishness to the... What is the message of the cross? Uh, Easter plays. No, what is the message of the cross? It's the gospel. The message of the cross is that we cannot save ourselves, right? We can't make ourselves better. We can't just go down to a bookstore, read a bunch of self-help books, try harder and be better. We cannot do that. We cannot save ourselves. The message of the cross says this, you and I need a Savior. What I love about 1 Corinthians 1.18 is this, the message of the cross is foolishness to the people that are perishing, but here's what it doesn't say, but to those of us who are being saved, it makes sense. That's not what it said, right? This is not a, a, a cognitive thing. Or it's just something we figure out. We have all the answers to. This is about our wills. This is the message of the cross is you cannot save yourself. You've got to have a Savior. And listen, more and more and more, that message in our culture is not a message that brings hope. It's not a message that people go, I love that. I love that you're telling me I can't do it, right? They, they, people, we, they, they want to believe. Man, I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. I can, I can be better. I can try harder. If we're people of the cross, if we're people that truly embrace the message, the foolish message of the cross, it is inevitable that at some point the message of the cross will be at odds with the message of a culture that sees the cross as foolish. There was a day when church and culture kind of ran together. But it wasn't because culture loved Jesus. It was just the way the world was. And today's not that day. Have you noticed that? There is a war that is raging. I think we've, we've kind of been lulled to sleep in this nine-month waiting period like the Jews were. Just hoping the day won't come. But it's coming. It may be here. 
I don't want to spend a lot of time on, on that. What I want you to get is this. We've been commanded to fight. The question is, how do we fight? So um, I'm going to give you this morning three specific guidelines, but I'm going to give you the big idea first. Just right up front. Here's your big idea. We, as followers of Jesus, we fight from victory, not for victory. We fight from victory, not for victory. That sounds really good. Let's make sure we understand exactly what that means. Let me give you a couple verses just to jot down. Colossians 2.15, we read this last week. It says that at the cross, Jesus Christ triumphed over the enemy. He triumphed over him. He was victorious at the cross. We know from that verse that Jesus has won the battle. The, the war is won. But Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 is a long passage. talks about the armor of God. Clearly, we're putting on the armor of God because even though Jesus won the victory, our enemy is not done fighting. So we're fighting, but we're fighting to keep the victory, not to earn the victory. Can you imagine, um, that's just a real quick sporting analogy, make sure you get this. Can you imagine you're playing on a team and you're playing football and it's the, it's the fourth quarter. There's about seven or eight minutes left in the game and your team is ahead by like five touchdowns. And there's no way the other team's coming back, right? There's not even, there's, they don't have good players. There's no way they're coming back. Is, is, is the victory pretty secure? Yeah. If you decide not to play, are you going to get the, just the stuff and knocked out of you? Yeah. Because there's still a game to play, even though the end of that game is pretty obvious. And, and that's kind of where we live, isn't it? We live in a world where we have an enemy, and he has been totally defeated. The, the Bible says, made a public spectacle of at the cross. That's great if we could just snap our fingers and go straight to heaven. Wouldn't that be great? But we're not in heaven yet. We're still on the playing field, and he's still ticked off. And so there's still a fight. There's still a fight to fight, even though the victory is secure. Here's the key difference between fighting from victory and fighting for victory. It's motivation. Think about this. It's one thing to fight for something that you've never had. When you're fighting for something that you've never had, you don't even know what it's like to have that something, right? And so it's very possible that you could get so tired in the fight that you just kind of go, it's probably not worth it. Like, I'm working my tail off to get a brand new car, but I bet that car is not nearly as good as I think it is. And so I'm just going to kind of just kick back and I'll just get a beater, <laughs> you know. I, I've never even, ex but, but what's the difference between that and when you have actually experienced the victory and someone wants to come take that from you? It's totally different. I know this is worth fighting for. I'm going to fight. Nobody's taking this from me. That's the difference. It's all about the motivation. I mean, when you've, when you've been bad and been given good, you'll fight to keep the good. It's what makes, the, I got a picture, it's what makes this picture so funny and yet so true. I will eat your face if you mess with my cup. Like, um, I, like you know, moms that just go mama bear, right? It's, why do they go mama bear? Because you're messing with their kids. It's the difference between you going to a neighbor's house and busting in their front door and trying to take their house. That's called um, robbery, right? It's totally different if somebody busts into your house and try to take your... 
you're fighting a lot harder to keep your house. Just because it's your house doesn't mean it's just, well, it's just mine. Nobody's going to. You fight for it. You fight to keep it. You fight to protect it. You fight to make sure nobody takes what is yours. And so when Jesus won the victory at the cross, he's like, look, church, you win. You win. You're fighting from victory. You're fighting to guard what he has secured. You fight. We fight. The Jews in, in Esther 9, they fought from victory. Listen, they had, they had the queen. The queen was a Jew. The prime minister, second in command, was a Jew. Not only that, it says the Jews assembled, verse 2, chapter 9, the, the Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. That's because they had God on their side. And then look at verse 3. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of the Mordecai had seized them. I mean, not only did they have like Queen Esther and Mordecai, all the officials were on their side. They're, they're fighting from victory. They've got all the people on their side. So if we're fighting from victory, if we're fighting from victory, what does that look like? What does that, how does that change the, 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 the killing that we see that's going to go on? For starters, it changes. It's not murder. It's killing. It's, it's, it's self-defense. Are there ever times that Christians should kill? Well, apparently here in Esther 9, there's a time. Is it the same as, like, I love people that say, well, the, you know, the, one of the commandments says, thou shalt not kill. And it says, that's not murder, right? And here we're going to see that. Esther chapter 9, verse 5. Let's just read this. The Jews struck down all their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed the 10 sons of Haman, who were name names that preachers don't read. The enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will also be granted. And verse 13 is a really weird verse where like things just feel a little bit dark, okay? Because I know we talked about this before. The temptation is to read Esther like good people, bad people, right? And so if we read it as a Christian, we're like, well, Esther's on our side. And so everything Esther does is fantastic. Well, here in, here, this is what Esther says. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews and Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also and let Haman's ten sons be, be hanged on the gallows. Let's just... Real quick, before we get to these three guidelines, break that verse down. So the, the, the law is for one day, for one day, anybody can attack the Jews and the Jews can, can protect themselves against anybody that attacks them. So on that day, 500 people in the city of Susa died. Now, we'll find a different number later for all the 127 provinces. And you'll also find that this extension only happened in Susa. This was not across the entire world. So when he goes to Esther and says, hey, I got good news. 500 people are dead. It, it worked. The Jews have, and, and Haman's sons are dead. What do you want now? And, and she said this, if it pleases the king, 
could we just extend the killing one more day? I, I, don't, I don't fully understand that. Can we, can we hang the sons of Haman? Now, they're already dead. We just read that. Well, we didn't read their names, but we read that. They're already dead, right? So why, why would she want it? Why? It is possible. But because they wanted to take the, the ten sons of Haman, and we already know this, hanging is not on a gallows. Hanging is like that impaling them high for all the world to see. It's very possible that even though they were dead and she wanted to go and, and do that, that they were going to need some people that could get their back while they did that because you know there were people still ticked off in Susa. And so she may very well say, hey, King, we want to we make a public display of the enemy so that Jews and everyone knows that God has won and fought for us. And we just, can we extend this one more day so that we can be protected while we do that? It's possible. I don't have, I don't have a great answer for you. But it's in there. It's in there. I see this as, man, somebody tries to take your kids. Somebody tries to take what's yours. You're like, I don't, I don't want to hurt you, but I will absolutely go martial arts on you right now. Right? Because you're trying to take what's mine. And I'm going to protect it. What does it mean to fight from victory? Just a quick glance at our landscape would reveal that we've got quite a war on our hands. Let's talk about just social injustices. ISIS, human trafficking. We've got social injustices. And we have social issues. Marriage, gender, abortion. Those are the ones that always get talked about. I'm sure there's a, tons of others. So we've got social issues. We've got social injustice. How do we fight that? How do we fight against that from victory? Here's three guidelines right here from Esther chapter 9. One, when we fight from victory, we fight courageously. In other words, the end is never in doubt, even if our end may be. The end is never in doubt, even if our end may be. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm just give you some verses to jot down. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses seven through eighteen. This is what Paul writes. He says, "We have this treasure in jars of clay to show us that all to show that all surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed; perplexed, not in despair; persecuted, but not abandoned; struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body." For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. In other words, we believe what Jesus says. We believe the gospel and we're also speaking the gospel. Verse 14 is the primary verse. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. Man, it doesn't matter what happens to me, I know that he's going to raise me. That's what, that's what Paul's saying. How do we fight in a culture? How do we fight for the principles of, of, and the gospel? We fight with courage. We fight knowing no matter what happens to me, the end of my life may sometimes feel like it's in doubt, but the end for God is never in doubt. Never in doubt. Hebrews 12, 28 says, while we're waiting, we fight in faith for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Philippians 1, 6, 
We fight for a God who finishes. I love that. He says, look, I'll finish in you what I started. We fight for a God who finishes what he started. In 2 Timothy 1.12. Paul's writing, he says this, 2 Corinthians 1.12. That is why, why? Because of verse 11, this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. He was appointed to proclaim the gospel. And he says, that is why, because I proclaim the gospel, that is why I am suffering as I am. I want you to see that. Like there's a fight going on. Our part in the fight means that we're going to suffer. But Paul says this, even while I'm suffering, I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. He knows who's guarding him. He knows who's holding him. He can fight courageously. When we fight from victory, the end is never in doubt, even when our end may be. We fight courageously. We also fight unselfishly. When we fight from victory, we never have to take from others in order to take care of ourselves. We never have to take from others in order to take care of ourselves. Three times in Esther 9, um, verse 10, 15, and 16, it says the same thing, that the Jews didn't touch the plunder. The Jews did not touch the plunder. I love that. Like, remember, remember Haman? Haman's like, I want to get rid of the Jews, and I want to make sure, like, I'll, I'll get all the money that they've got, and I will give it to the king. I will put all that money in the king's treasury. I will take from the Jews and make the king wealthy. So when the Jews fight, to, to protect themselves, they fight differently, don't they? We see Jews fighting differently than what the other people were fighting. They're not fighting to take. They're fighting to keep. Listen, in our culture, when you're fighting, fighting the spiritual things in our culture, when you're fighting worldviews in our culture, man, I hear Christians fight people, and it's like, dude, what are you doing? When did you get so angry? When did you forget who you are? When did you forget that you fight from victory, that you have a, a king who has won? What are you trying to take from them? We're, we're fighting from victory. We want to win the battle and then take the stuff. And I love in Esther 9, they're just like, look, we're just protecting ourselves. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll kill you if we have to. We don't want to, but we will. We'll kill you if we have to. I'm not, I'm not going to like get on a plane, fly to the Middle East, and look for somebody like really big in ISIS and just go, hi. Right? <laughs> I'm not doing that. I'm just going to hang here like, you know, whatever you want to do, just do it. No. Like they're fighting to protect themselves. But their motive is different. They're not fighting to take stuff. We're not trying to take things. We're fighting to keep things. They didn't touch the plunder. I think sometimes that this could be what sets us apart. The motives of the enemy are selfish, but our motives are in line with a God who loved the world and gave in response to it. See that? Like their motives are to take what's mine, and God's motive is to give what's his. We fight for that king. We fight courageously, we fight unselfishly, and then the last one is we fight with humility. The last half of Esther, Esther chapter 9 talks about the establishment of a Jewish holiday called Purim. Um, the, the, the word comes from, the Persian word for pure is pure, and that means lot. And if, if you go back to Esther 3, 7, that's when Haman 
They were like, I want to have a day when we can kill all the Jews. And the king's like, well, let's get on the calendar. What day should we have it? And he said, hold on, let's cast lots. And so they cast lots like rolling dice. And the lot fell on this specific day. Okay, so it, that's pure. That's where the, and they, this Purim becomes this, this, this festival, this holiday that the Jews to this day celebrate. Every year they celebrate this holiday. And the reason they celebrate was so they could remember how God delivered them here. But what caught my eye is this. They didn't just celebrate their victory, but they used it as an opportunity to give to each other and to the poor. Esther chapter 9, verse 22. It says, as the time when the Jews, this is why they're going to celebrate it, when the Jews got relief from their enemies, that's what they're celebrating, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration, he wrote them, to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Okay, so look at me because I'm giving you a lot of stuff. I want to make sure you get this. Even in the worst possible moment, look at me, even in the worst possible moment for the Jews, when God delivered them and they had a reason to celebrate their victory, even in that moment, God said, now, I want you to establish a festival. I want you to establish an annual event when you will remember that I delivered you. And as a part of that event, I want to make sure that you're giving gifts to the poor. I mean, there's something about humility that wins people over. There's something about winning this war that they had, this fight, and then they're not standing there going, see, we're all that. Don't you wish you were on our side? And there's something up. They won with humility. And they were, they were given a charge every single year when you celebrate this. Mark that celebration by giving things away. Again, I don't see this mentality in the church today. I see a very argumentative, let's debate it all so that I can win mentality. This is not the mentality of your father. Your father's mentality is, I fought for you at the cross. I won the victory for you. Now, you fight from victory. You secure and keep what's yours. And as you do that, you make sure that you do it with courage. You make sure that you do it unselfishly. You make sure that you do it with humility. Let people want to fight the message and not want to fight the man. That's the key. We've got to wrap this up, and I want, you, I want to do this. I want to highlight two verses in Esther. So keep your finger in Esther chapter 9, verse 30, and then flip back to Esther chapter 3, verse 13. While you're, while you're catching all that... Um, Here's why courage and unselfishness and humility is so important. Because, like, think back to the Hunger Games, right? You got two different groups of people. Sometimes in church, we've got more people who are on the side that goes, weapons, this is great, let's kill something. Instead of, like, I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to kill you. I, I, want, I want to win you over. I want you to see the Jesus that I see. I don't want to fight you, but it's worth fighting for if I have to. Esther chapter 3, verse 13. 
This was back when Haman was plotting against the Jews. And so they wrote the law, and they, that we've seen the postal service work a couple of times in the book where they would load up all the king's um, horses with some really fast riders, and they would take off. And so verse 13, that's what they're doing. It says this, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order, and here's the, here's the part that I want you to get, with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. Okay, you got that? And to plunder their goods. You see that at the end of verse 13? So they're loading up, they're loading up the, post, the postal service, and they're saying, hey, why don't you deliver this message? And Haman writes a law, and Haman's message, the enemy, the enemy's message is that we're going to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, and they're going to plunder their goods. That's the enemy's message. You with me? Now, flip over to Esther chapter 9, verse 30. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes. So Haman's, Haman's message was one of destruction. And what is the message coming from Xerxes? Words of goodwill and assurance. The thief comes to steal, kill, destroy, but I've come to give you life and life to the full, John 10, 10. This is the difference between the enemy and our king. And here's what's really important. I, I, don't, I, hope, God, I hope you're getting this. If you're, if you're not getting this, just go download it and listen to it again, and I'll pray that God helps me speak better on the website that I am right now. Um, I want to make sure you get this. Church, look at me. You carry a message. You carry a message. Which king wrote it? Which king wrote it? Because when Haman wrote a message, it was a message of destruction. But when Mordecai wrote it, it was a message of goodwill. Which king are you working for? You can tell me which king you love, but the message you carry reveals which king you're working for. Do you get that? It's huge. How we interact with culture reveals which king we're working for. Not necessarily which king we love, but which king we're working for. And if the words that are coming out of our mouths are words of destruction, we're not working for Jesus. We have a message to carry. It is the good news of the gospel. It is a message about a cross and a Savior. There is goodwill and freedom in that message because our king wrote it with his blood. Will there be times that we have to fight in order to carry that message? Absolutely. Never forget this. Our king has won, and we fight from that victory, never for that victory. And when we understand that, it just really struck me this week. It's possible that when we understand all of this, the most unloving thing we can do is to stop fighting for the gospel. The most unloving thing we can do, it just blows my mind because like you'll hear people, well, we're supposed to love people, so don't ruffle their feathers. Like the most unloving thing we can do is to stop fighting for the gospel. Because the minute we stop fighting for the gospel, we have taken an entire culture and said, here, we'll just put you in the hands of a king that writes messages of destruction. 
I don't want to do that. How loving is that? It's good to know that we've won. It's not enough to sit back and hope that we never have to fight. Because there is an enemy, he has been defeated, and as long as he is able, he will fight. So be brave. Take up your arms. And like Paul said in Ephesians, having done everything to stand, stand. We fight from victory, not for victory. This morning, I need you to to bow your heads and close your eyes. I need you to have some time with Jesus. I just want you to kind of just let, let yourself have a conversation with, with the Lord. Which king are you working for? I can tell you this without a doubt. That what's going to set the church apart is not going to be our logo. It's, it's a great one. It's not going to be that we picked orange as a color scheme. It's great a color. It will not be the chick drummer. She's fantastic. What will set our church apart is that we're carrying a message from a king who wants to bring life. And we probably don't carry that message in here as much as we do out there because, I mean, we're speaking life in here for sure, but man, you, you're interacting with culture. I'm interacting with culture every day of the week in dark places that need light. And I want this morning to, I want to pray for you that, that in those dark places, there would be something about your message that makes them believe there's a different king behind your life. Maybe I just talked way too long to get to that point. I don't know. I'm sorry if I did, but please carry the message of the king on the winning side. Please. God, I can't be any different than everybody sitting here. I, I look at culture, and things are changing so fast. And this isn't so much a series about culture. But God, there's just no denying. When we look at Esther chapter 9, it, here's... Here's Esther and here's Mordecai and here are all these Jews. And, and for the most part, they won. I mean, they won. They, they, they voted their people in. They had their people in office. They won. I mean, this would be like us electing whoever the right president is for the, the religious right, God. It would be like all of our people are in positions of leadership. And the truth of the matter is, even in that environment, there was a day coming when they had to fight. There's always going to be enemies. God, and my prayer is that we would be those people who say, I'm not afraid to fight. I'm not going to fight like a jerk. 
I'm not going to fight so I can take your self-respect. I can take who you think you. I'm not fighting against you. I'm fighting for a king to, to keep this victory that he's already secured at the cross. I'm fighting because the gospel is true and it's a foolish message, but man, we need a savior. God, I, I just pray this morning as we're kind of dialoguing with you in our own spirits, I just pray for those in this room this morning that on the inside right now, they're like, yes, God, I'll do it. I'll, st- I'll stand up. I'll stand for you in this culture. I'm not afraid much. And even when I am, I'll still do it. Because what we have, what you've given to us, this message of goodwill and assurance and life and salvation, what we've been given is worth fighting for. And I just pray for an anointing of power on their lives. I pray for those of us in here that are convicted right now about the words that come out of our mouths. That if we could record them and listen to them at the end of the day, we would hang our heads in shame because they are words of destruction and not of goodwill. They are words that reveal a different king that we do not love. And I thank you, God, that when we confess that sin to you, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Because we want to walk out of this place as true representations of King Jesus and a kingdom of life.